about a week or two ago, I was having a conversation with a girlfriend of mine, and this is a gal who works in the restaurant industry, or did work in the restaurant industry, of course, until the COVID-19 pandemic hit. She was a manager at a local restaurant in Vancouver. And since she has been out of work and living off of Serb, she said that she now may have to move back in with her parents once again. She said that $2,000 a month pretty much just covers the cost of her rent to live in downtown Vancouver. And she said it might be time for me to fly home to Ontario and move back in with the folks again. My friend is not alone in her struggle. In fact, a new national survey shows at least 1.5 million Canadians have moved back in with their parents since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us to discuss more of these findings is Nicole McKnight. She's the PR manager for Finder.com. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Hi, thank you for having me on. So what exactly did your survey reveal? Yeah, so what was interesting about our survey at you had already mentioned that you know one in ten Canadians, which is about two point eight million people, have seen their living situation change uh, due to COVID. And like you just mentioned about that friend of yours, the largest trend that we noticed was you know one million or so Canadians saying you know not only were they thinking about moving back with family, um, but one point five million Canadian adults had already moved back in with their parents. Um, so that was by far the largest trend, and. You know, obviously due to COVID, you know, is why they've done that. But what was interesting and makes us think that it might be a bit more of a longer term trend is that another 860,000, you know, parents said their adult children had also been back in with them. um, It's just the idea that another 607,000 say they are still considering moving home. So so like the person you had mentioned, um, so many have already made the move, but so many are still thinking of doing it, uh, showing that there's still you know either an economic strain um, or just other changes that have got them thinking about this. That's really interesting that, you know, we are seeing a trend up until this point. However, we could continue to see this trend carry on through the rest of the summer into the fall and so forth as more people continue to struggle financially. This may just be the tip of the iceberg with more people finding themselves in a very difficult situation, say, come this fall, especially as students have to start paying tuition fees to go back to university and so forth, money getting a little bit tighter. Once again, we could see more people moving back home. Now, I imagine that that is the particular demographic who you really saw the most results with uh, here. Is that, you know, the the young adult demographic? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I I think when we looked at, you know, the different age groups, Canada's youngest adults uh, aged 18 to 24 were, you know, by far the most likely to have already moved home at 13%. Um, another 3% of those in that age group are, are still contemplating it. So I, I, I think you've hit on it when you, when you talk about the fact that there's students in that age group. Um, there are also many people still starting out their careers. So, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, they may have been finished school and just moving out to their first apartment or, or something like that. And then, you know, COVID hits. And um, I think you had mentioned before the high cost of rent and, and, and cities like Vancouver, for example, uh, may see them kind of returning to that safety net of their parents as they're, you know, trying to finish up school or launch their careers. So, so yeah, definitely facing a little bit of an uphill battle here um, is what we found. But another interesting thing is, you know, even though that generation um, 
it would make sense that they're the ones that are they're moving home the most often. We also found that six uh, percent of those aged 25 to 34, uh, another three percent of those aged 35 to 44, also had already moved back with parents, and many others were still thinking about it in those age groups. So I think it that still implies that it you know kind of goes beyond students to you know adults really just looking to their older parents as a safety net when they may have even lost their job, um, even if they have been working for several years in their career. So I I think it's a challenge facing all Canadians. Um, On that note, we also noticed a reverse trend uh, where there were 278,000 Canadian parents um, of adult children who said they moved back in with their adult children. Really? Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, we can only speculate as to the causes, but I, I think you know, there's many um, parents of young children that are, you know, struggling sometimes at various places in the country. There may not be options for childcare. You know, there's questions around school, and they've ha- been having to work from home. Um, you know, often without any help and trying to homeschool children and all that sort of thing. So um, that those 278,000 parents. Um, many of them are likely grandparents moving in with their adult children to, to help out, which could give a little bit of a silver lining um, to sort of this trend of, of so many Canadians changing their living situation uh, in this, you know, really interesting time that we find ourselves in. And do we know how these findings break down province by province? Because I don't think yeah. that anyone listening would be surprised to hear that <laughs> typically in provinces where rents and housing costs may be a little bit higher, those are the provinces where we'll see more of this movement, this intergenerational movement with housing. Yes, for sure. So I think, you know, when we looked across the country, um, Ontario, British Columbia and Quebec were the provinces that saw the most movement. Um, And while Ontario saw 6% of um, adult children move back in with their parents, uh, BC actually saw you know, even it, even though they were just a little bit under that at 5% of adult children moving back in with their parents, they had, you know, another 3% um, saying they were thinking about it. Um, and 4% of parents in BC said their adult children had already moved back in with them. So across the board, sort of, they had, you know, BC has the highest numbers of this sort of movement between generations. Um, and to your point, I think it's sort of a dual trend happening where you've got um, the fact that, you know, in Ontario and Quebec, for example, they saw sort of the, the highest numbers of COVID. Um, but at the same time, uh, Ontario, Quebec and BC both have, you know, large metropolitan cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, where, to your point, rents can be much higher. And it can be much, much more challenging for younger people um, to sort of um, make ends meet, essentially. Nicole, I imagine your survey didn't ask this, but I'd be curious to know the answer. (laughs) Did you survey people, parents in particular, on how they feel about their kids moving back in again? Are they happy to have the kids back or are they going, oh, no, I got to take I got to do the laundry again. Are you kidding me? I thought I was done with this. Uh, we didn't we didn't get into that much detail so so you know some of i guess it would be speculation but i've spoken with many many people and i i think to to your point as well talking about the the person in working in hospitality um you know spoken to many people in this situation that um i think they found a bit of a silver lining where uh there was a, a friend of mine who had moved back in with with parents um and their reasoning was actually around again being in a big city um it wasn't even fully financial it was just sort of the concerns around COVID and, um, you know, safety and kind of moving out to parents who had lived, sort of had a bigger house out in the suburbs. They felt a little bit more safe and had a little bit more space. Um, but they kind of said there was some silver linings there with with getting to, um, 
you know, having parents maybe help out a little bit more, cook meals, or to your point, whether it's doing laundry. Um, so I think with the, the younger people moving back in with their parents, maybe there's some comfort there. Um, but then again, you know, with parents who, you know, thought they were empty nesters, there may be some challenges um, with all of a sudden realizing, that, you know, their nests aren't so empty. <laughs> so sure it can go both ways. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me on. That was Nicole McKnight. She's the PR manager for Finder.com. They did a survey that found 1.5 million Canadians, particularly young adults, as you heard, have decided to move back in with their parents, a choice they've had to make in many cases because of their financial situation as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you remember hearing about record-breaking temperatures in Russia's Arctic Circle last month? A little bit warmer there than what we'll be experiencing in Vancouver today. One community, temperatures climbed to 38 degrees, making June 20th for this town the highest air temperature ever recorded in the Arctic. But there's more to this story than just record-breaking temperatures. Heat waves like this one wildfires, permafrost, they all play a role in climate change. To explain more, Catherine Dealman joins us. She's a research associate in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph. Catherine, first of all, let's talk about that record-breaking heat in Russia. What temperatures exactly did we see and how unique is that? Good morning. Yeah, we saw temperatures in Russia getting up almost uh, approaching 40 degrees Celsius. So uh, quite, quite high. Um, historically, I mean, we, we do see high temperatures occurring in the north. They do occur from time to time. Uh, this one was particularly notable because it was quite, quite possibly one of the highest temperatures we've ever seen in the Arctic. So that definitely caused um, a large portion of the world to think about this region a lot to stand up and take notice that um, things are getting exceptionally warm up in the high Arctic it's, It was yeah. certainly a story that caught my attention. I mean, you don't think of temperatures being 38 degrees or hotter in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, I mean, so that that is kind of a common thought. When we think about the North, we often think about it as being quite cold. Um, but sometimes, especially during the summer seasons in June and July, we can get these warmer temperatures forming. This year was unique because of a number of different both climatic and weather conditions that combined to kind of create this perfect storm of conditions that allowed things to get quite hot, particularly in uh, that Russian region of the Arctic. So how do heat waves like this lead to even more climate change fallout? Absolutely. So heat waves create a number of different um, local conditions that can spawn a number of follow-up events. So they can create uh, really dry conditions. We have these hot temperatures. Um, There can be uh, a lot of storms that follow these heat waves, such as really intense thunderstorms. And we know that when we've got dry soils paired with um, ignition, like a lightning strike, then we can get other events forming uh, following these heat waves. And those are, include things like wildfire. And those uh, can last for months, if not years, following that one heat wave event. 
And that's uh, kind of another piece of this climate change story, because as we have these fire events occurring, they're consuming uh, material on that landscape. And when they do, I mean, a lot of our material, it's organic, so it's made of carbon. And when it gets consumed, it gets released back up into the atmosphere, increasing our carbon uh, concentrations up in our atmosphere. So it's kind of this stepped connection. We've got our heat waves, we've got our warm temperatures, we've got uh, changing conditions, so things tend to be drier, you've got these storms, and then you've got our fire events occurring on the landscape. I imagine it like a circle. I mean, you have the heat wave, you have the drier conditions, you have the wildfires, and in turn, you get more heat than you have dry conditions, you get more wildfires, and so forth and so forth. That's it, exactly. Yeah, we call that a positive feedback. And um, that's something that we think about a lot in the climate change uh, research, just because these are things that kind of keep triggering each other, right? You've got Uh, These warm conditions, it triggers our wildfire. The wildfire burns a lot of the carbon that has been stored on the landscape, especially in the north, sometimes for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, It's been accumulated and almost held in trust for us. And then we have these large wildfires come through, it consumes it, and it releases it back up into the atmosphere as often CO2, but also different compounds. And then that increases those concentrations, and we're, we're continuing on on that circle, as you said. Now, what role does permafrost play in this? Uh, I love talking about permafrost. So <laughs> permafrost is uh, these below-ground soil conditions that is defined as being below zero degrees Celsius for two or more years in a row. And so, of course, when you're up in these northern regions where we've got these really intense, long winters, it's a lot more common to have permafrost in these soils. But we've kind of got a couple of different factors coming together that are challenging permafrost. And that's those heat waves, the warmer conditions, but also these intensely warm conditions, as well as wildfires. So if you've got warmer conditions, which we know is happening globally, especially in the north, we're going to have uh, this more gradual thaw occurring simply because the temperatures are warmer. However, in our most southern regions of permafrost, quite often the reason that we have permafrost now is because it's protected. And it's protected by the environment that it happens to occur in. We call that ecosystem protection. And so that's because the the plants that are there, the soil that is there, they're all kind of combining to create this protective blanket over the permafrost. And it inhibits uh, the sun's temperature or the sun's rays from reaching the soils and uh, kind of create all of these different conditions that allow the permafrost to persist, even though the climate there is a little bit warmer. And if it wasn't there, if that vegetation wasn't there, it's quite possible that we would have lost that permafrost already. So we know that the vegetation and that ecosystem is really important to protect that permafrost. Now we've had a heat wave. Perhaps that heat wave didn't impact the permafrost because it was protected in this case. But following the heat wave, it may trigger a wildfire. That is fascinating stuff. I'm sorry, Catherine, we have to let you go due to time, but I really appreciate it. Really, really interesting stuff. Awesome. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me. That was Catherine Dealman, Research Associate at the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph. 
What is the latest in the We Charity scandal? It seems like we still haven't reached the bottom of this story yet. Since the Liberals' controversial deal for the charity to run a $900 million student volunteer program, now some major corporate sponsors are distancing themselves from We. That includes Virgin Atlantic Airwaves and RBC reconsidering their relationship with the charity. And that comes as both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Finance Minister Bill Morneau face ethics probes after failing to recuse themselves from discussions about the nearly $1 billion contract. It's no surprise that the likes of Andrew Scheer have been extremely critical of the Liberals over this scandal. Disturbing new details emerge every day. And I know it can be difficult to follow, given the tangled web the Liberals have woven. So today, let's go over what we do know so far, and some of the many questions that still must be answered. We know that Justin Trudeau handed almost a billion dollars to a charity that has paid multiple members of his family almost $300,000. We know that since Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister, the Trudeaus have appeared at, participated in, and financially benefited from dozens of WE events. Each time, they were given a platform to promote their personal brand and the Liberal Party policies. We know that we employ as a member of the Finance Minister's family and that it has close ties to the Liberal Party. We know that Minister Morneau accepted $41,000 in illegal travel expenses from we for two luxury vacations in 2017. We know that we has used these trips in the past to gain supporters and influence. We know that we has acquired more than $40 million in prime Toronto real estate. We know that despite all of the obvious conflicts of interest, Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau failed to recuse themselves from the cabinet decision to hand their friends almost a billion dollars of taxpayers' money. We know that the contract was given to a We Shell company for the organization's real estate holdings so that we could avoid any legal liability. And we know that Justin Trudeau has repeatedly tried to use the pandemic to amass power for himself to reward his friends. These facts alone are disturbing enough, but perhaps even more so is what we still don't know. Philip Cross is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, and he joins us now. Philip, welcome to the program. Good to be on. Thank you. Now, in your recent Financial Post article, you wrote that the Trudeau government said it relied on the advice of a, quote, neutral, nonpartisan civil service. But you point out some big problems with this. So what's the issue here? Well, the issue is that the civil service is neither neutral nor nonpartisan. I think in terms of this particular um, controversy, the important thing to understand is, and here I'm recalling on my 36 years in the civil service, is that when you work in a policy department, your job is to serve the minister. You are not neutral. Uh, I mean, I recall instances where civil servants, Stackhand was excluded from this because we're an independent agency, but civil servants were told, whatever the minister says, your job is to find research, to publish research that supports that. So uh, pleasing the minister, supporting the minister, 
finding, proving that the minister is right is absolutely the job of the civil service. So the idea that these people have a neutral view of, of the minister is absolutely false. If you know your minister has a very close relationship with we, uh, you're going to make your recommendations pleasing to the minister. It sounds like a nice phrase, doesn't it? Oh, we're going to rely on this neutral, nonpartisan civil service. But you just had to peel back one layer of this logical onion to find flaws there. I, I don't think the civil service has been neutral or nonpartisan for a long time, and particularly when it comes to the Liberal Party. Uh, over the last century, literally 50% of the time, uh, the civil service has supplied the leader of the Liberal Party. That includes... Um, William Lyon Mackenzie King, Louis Saint Laurent, Lester Pearson. Uh, it, we may yet, if Justin goes down in flames over this controversy, we may yet see the former governor of the Bank of Canada become the next uh, uh, liberal leader. That would be Mark Carney. So there's a very close link between uh, the civil service and the Liberal Party. Uh, so even the idea that it's it's nonpartisan is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I cited in the uh, op-ed that you you referred to that uh, when Justin took power in 2015, there was uh, you know uh, overt cheering and um, by the the civil service at his first meeting with them. So uh, uh, there's a very close, cozy relationship. Uh, and as is, was noted, everybody knows that this prime minister has a very close relationship with the We Foundation. Uh, it's it's well known that they've talked, uh, as you say, as your opening bit soundbite uh, indicated. Uh, the prime minister and his family have talked dozens of times to the We Foundation. Everybody in Ottawa knows that. So you're going to uh, make you funnel your requests to uh, favor We. So the idea that this is a neutral, nonpartisan uh, recommendation of the civil service just uh, holds no water. Now, also in your op-ed, you note that we should be very wary of temporary programs launched during the COVID-19 pandemic, because these could very likely become permanent based on what's happened through the course of history. Yeah. Well, along with uh, favoring the minister, what the, the civil service these days, what it's become is... Uh, it, it pursues its own self-interest, and uh, the number one trick of the civil service to expand its numbers and its programs over the years is to introduce a temporary program and say, well, let's just try this. It's just for a while, uh, and then it just it automatically becomes permanent. And it's especially true if you introduce a program that helps what are regarded as the most vulnerable people in our society, uh, low-income people, for example, who get uh, the G, uh, um, the uh, GTS credit, or um, lower-income people who get the Child Canada benefit, or older people who get enhanced GIC, GIS, you know that if you expand those programs, it automatically becomes permanent, because any attempt to roll back those programs, somebody will start screaming, oh, you're attacking old people, or you're attacking poor people. Uh, and uh, the civil service knows that no government can withstand attacks like that. So they they always introduce these, let's just try this temporary program for this vulnerable group. Uh, that becomes permanent, and then they start leveraging that that program to include more and more people. So uh, I'd be very concerned that with all these temporary programs we've already seen, I think it's inevitable that, that a large number of them are going to become permanent. Uh, I think the 
the the one saving grace might be that CERB has proved to be just so expensive that uh, I don't think, and the government's so broke now, I don't think there's any chance that we'll be trying to make a universal basic income permanent at this point anyways. I love a little historical tidbit. And in your op-ed, you know something really interesting that I didn't know, and that is essentially what we're having this conversation about now. That is also the genesis of Statistics Canada. Well, yes, my former colleagues at uh, Statistics Canada, they've used this trick. As I say, it's it's a very well-known trick in the, um, uh, in the civil service. One is introduce a temporary program, like in 1986 we said, well, let's just try having a census every five years instead of every ten. And lo and behold, it's been five, it's just automatically been five years ever since then. Uh, the other trick uh, that the Civil Service loves is what's called the Washington Monument tactic, that if, heaven forbid, you are ever asked to make a cut, you propose that, oh, let's get rid of the Washington Monument, knowing that it's such a sacred symbol, uh, symbol that nobody will ever accept it. So um, uh, you have to watch out for those. Uh, the, uh, when the civil service is expanding, they like to take a temporary program and uh, propose a temporary program knowing it becomes permanent. And whenever they're asked for cuts, they offer up the most sacred thing possible, knowing that you'll never accept it. And this is how the civil service over time just keeps growing and growing uh, uh, to the to the sprawling state that it is today. Philip Cross, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And I encourage you to check out Philip's op-ed, which you can find in the latest Financial Post. Of course, you can find that online as well. Should young people be detained in hospital after a drug overdose? The province has proposed legislation that would essentially force young people under the age of 19 following a drug overdose to stay in hospital. Mental Health and Addictions Minister Judy Darcy said that this would help ensure the immediate safety of young people. She said that this could help ensure young people have the support that they need after they are discharged. But it hasn't been well received by everyone. Some health professionals worry that there simply aren't enough treatment beds available. Others worry that detaining youth could cause youth to lose trust in the people who are trying to help them if they feel like they're being detained against their will. Others, like the Union of BC Indian Chiefs and the BC Civil Liberties Association, say that they're among the groups who were not consulted on this proposed legislation. They say that other programs are needed instead to prevent overdoses from happening in the first place and that detainment in hospitals is not the right solution. So, is this the right way for the province to go? We're going to have a bigger conversation about it now. Joining us to discuss this further is Leslie McBain. She's the Family Engagement Lead for the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. Leslie, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Can you walk us through what happens right now after a young person overdose uh, overdoses? They're they're in a hospital. Can you take us inside that hospital room to their bedside? You know, what conversation are they currently having with health professionals? Well, I think there isn't one answer to that. It depends on the ER that they're in. It depends on which uh, medical health professional they are um, able to be engaged with. Uh, But I would say mostly what happens is uh, they are stabilized. They're uh, probably given uh, naloxone. um, 
and whatever else is, is medically necessary for them to um, sort of get balanced. Um, and then they're released, and they may be released on their own, or they may be released into their family's care. Uh, I don't think, like I say, I don't think there's one answer, and I don't think the um, current situation is, is, just as it is, just as it isn't, I should say, with adults, it's not very, it's not very comprehensive, and it's not very um, complete. And I imagine that that essentially is what's lacking then, a comprehensive, complete program to help people for when they are released following an overdose to make sure that this doesn't repeat itself. Yes. Um, The amendment to the Mental Health Act, that's Bill 22, which is what we're talking about, tries to address that. And we all agree that that the province had the best intent of intentions with this with this amendment, um, but it's so very flawed in so many ways that that's really what the pushback is. It isn't that the intentions weren't good. It isn't that we don't need more care and more support for youth, but it's just the way that this is written is is um, almost counterproductive. Let's talk about some of those ways in which this is flawed. You know, I mentioned a few briefly in this introduction, but I'm curious to delve a little bit deeper into that. Well, there, there are several ways to look at it. There are there absolutely are legal implications to this, um, human rights, and kids have the ability to uh, have confidentiality, to not have their parents involved, to you know, have a say in their care. And this is not included in this amendment. So, so there's that. But then there's just the on-the-ground um, reality of it. If you can just imagine um, a youth being brought in in an overdose situation and whatever happens, you know, whatever care they get and so on and so forth, and then they wake up and find themselves in a locked ward. This doesn't seem like the best way to uh, instill trust in the system, it doesn't seem like the right way for the beginning of, of a treatment plan. So I just know my son, who, who did die of an overdose in 2014, I know that if that had happened to him, he would have been enraged. He would have been, it would have, it would have ended any, any trust he had in the system or any trust that he had in, in, a, in a path to recovery, if there was one. So there, there is that part of it. Um, also, we don't have enough care and treatment and beds and options for for adults at this point, never mind youth. There is no infrastructure in place for youth if after, say, if they are um, kept in care for seven days or whatever whatever they, the medical folks determine, um, and they are released into, if they want to, into a treatment plan, there really isn't anything. So there's a lot of work to be done before this plan would, this amendment could go into effect. We're fighting really hard to make changes uh, or encourage the, the government to make changes to this. It is quite complicated and multidimensional, isn't it? Because on it the is, one hand, yeah. yeah, you have healthcare professionals saying, okay, you know, we think that this is a solution. But as you said, and I, and I think said so well, in a practical sense, if you tell a young person that they're going to be locked inside a hospital, for, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. for however many days, you are going to potentially alienate that young person, that they will not reach out to healthcare professionals in future when they need to do so, afraid that once again, they're going to be locked up in that hospital room. Exactly. And, and actually, to just take that a little further, once um, kids 
uh, understand if this bill uh, or this amendment does go into into the act, um, once they understand that the possibility of overdose might take them to that kind of a, a situation, they may be hesitant to call 911. Their friends, you know, if someone overdoses and they know that uh, 911 might not be an option. And, and that's a scary thought, too, because 911 and naloxone are the harm reduction pathways to staying alive during an overdose. So that is another big consideration that kids, kids will just, I don't know what they'll do exactly, but it won't be calling 911 in, in a lot of situations. So, um, yeah, again, the trust issue, uh, it's, um, it's fundamentally flawed. And there are so many points that need to be addressed. And I think, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, just on Friday, uh, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions told a lot of us who are advocates for change on this that uh, they're going to put the bill on on pause. That was oh. the word, on pause, so that hopefully they will consult. They didn't consult with stakeholders such as our families um, and the legal societies and the um, First Nations uh, chiefs and youth. So there was practically no consultation with stakeholders. So I think they're going to go back to the drawing board. So I'm, I'm just very hopeful that we can sort this out. Well, that's positive to hear that they listened to what the opposition has been saying, because as you even mentioned there, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs said, mm. we weren't properly consulted in this, and there is a statistical likelihood that Indigenous youth will be affected most by this. Yes, exactly. And the idea of, of, sort of more remote communities, the kids being taken from their community and taken to some hospital that's not within reach of their families and their support system is just wrong. So I'm so glad that um, the Indigenous Council uh, spoke up about this too, because that is huge. Um, and, and Indigenous youth will be the most effective, affected sorry, uh, by, this, um, by this bill if, if it happens. So what are possible solutions if we are to take this bill and make it better, to change it uh, now that it's on pause and find a better solution? What would you like to see? That is a really good question. It, it's, it's hard to tease this apart. Um, we want, obviously, we want kids to be safe. Uh, and when they come in to the ER presenting with, with overdose, and, and if they are um, addicted and um, needing help, then we need a more compassionate uh, approach to this. And I think what I would like to see in a perfect world is um, a very compassionate health professional coming in to talk to the youth and saying, here's what we have for you. Um, we, can, we could supply you with medically assisted treatment. We could supply you with a counselor. Do you, would you like your family to come in and, and be supportive and help you in this? Rather than just, boom, putting them into um, either a youth psych ward or some other locked ward, which we don't even know what that would be. Um, it just seems there is a more uh, uh, compassionate approach. The evidence shows that, that um, uh, locking kids up or locking anyone up um, coerced care doesn't work. And that's the other thing. There's not a lot of evidence, but what there is says this approach is not successful. So there are ways we can treat youth, but BC and all other provinces need more trained 
professionals, and that is, like I say, prescribers, doctors, nurse practitioners, counselors to support youth. We just don't have that in place. Thank you so much for this conversation, Leslie McBain. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. That was Leslie McBain, the Family Engagement Lead for the British Columbia Centre on Substance Youth and co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. And as you heard, she was discussing uh, new legislation that was proposed that we've now learned has since been put on hold that would force youth under the age of 19 to stay in hospital following an overdose, following a drug overdose. Now, the Mental Health and Addictions Minister said that this could help ensure the immediate safety of young people. But what people who are opposed to this bill are saying, or this legislation are saying, is that it could cause longer-term harm, that you could keep young people from wanting to engage in the healthcare system if they feel like they will be detained. And as you heard Leslie say, that it's in question if young people would even call 911 if they saw a friend overdosing, knowing that their friend could be detained. So I'm glad to hear that this legislation will be reworked. It's since been put on hold. It sounds like it will be reworked anyways before it goes forward. And it sounds like there will be more consultation with groups such as the BC Civil Liberties Association and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, as well as healthcare professionals who have also said, we simply don't have enough treatment beds available. We'll keep you up to date on this story as it continues to unfold. About two dozen protesters gathered outside Oak Ridge Mall in Vancouver on Friday to protest China's new Hong Kong national security law. Demonstrators say the law threatens freedom of the press, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. There is concern amongst those here that this national security law is going to threaten human rights in Hong Kong. In fact, they're also worried uh, that it'll threaten freedoms of the press, freedom of expression, speech and assembly in the territory. They say that there is a man who lives here in B.C. He has been endorsing this law. In fact, went on social media to do that. They stress that he does not speak on behalf of everyone from Hong Kong who was living here now in Canada. They are calling on the Canadian government to do more in speaking out against it. In our social media, if I were, I were captured by the, by, the, by the CCP, the Communist Party of China, you are liable to be arrested and we will be put in prison for, uh, for, the, for, for the whole life. And also, it includes all the foreigners, all the human beings on earth, even you and me, are liable to be arrested. There are about two dozen protesters here at the corner of Canby and 41st. They are hoping that Canadians will respond to their message, but most importantly, the Canadian government responding by speaking out. Nadia Stark, Global News. But that's not the only example of protests against China that we've been seeing lately. Another protest is scheduled for today in Vancouver, 2 o'clock at the Vancouver Art Gallery. The attendees at this rally will be from multi-ethnic backgrounds, united in a common cause, and that is to draw attention to China's human rights record, including the detention of two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They're speaking out in support of the alleged nearly one million Uyghur Muslims detained at camps in China. And to speak more about the rally that's planned for today and the action they hope to take is Shalina Nurley, youth representative of the Vancouver Uyghur Association. Shalina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. First, let's talk about the Uyghur Muslim population. Can you t- explain a bit about uh, who they are and and what the situation is in China right now? 
Um, so Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group uh, that mainly reside in Central Asia. Um, so Xinjiang, um, known as New Territory in uh, Communist China, is an occupied land, um, East Turkestan. So uh, we've been occupied for the past 70 years. And although Uyghurs have always been persecuted by the Communist Party, um, in the past years it's gotten worse. For example, in 2017, we first heard reportings of the concentration camps. Um, where they're psychologically and physically tortured. And um, in the most recent weeks and months, we've heard news about the forced sterilization, organ harvesting. Um, so, yeah, they're being ethnically, um, there's, going, there's an ethnic genocide that's happening right now with the Uyghurs in um, occupied East Turkestan. And it seems as though that this this horrendous story is yet another example of human rights violations or alleged human rights violations that we are now hearing of from China. But it's not just a small group of people that we're discussing. Once again, you know, we're talking about a, a million people detained. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the rally that's planned for today, a multi ethnic group will be coming out to speak on many causes, uh, all relating to China. Can you tell me more about what's planned for the rally? Um, Yeah, so basically we're trying to condemn uh, the oppression of uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, regime towards uh, Hong Kongers, Tibetans, and occupied East Turkestan, as well as um, China's aggression towards its neighboring countries of India and the Philippines. Uh, Together, so other communities were trying to demand uh, China to seize its oppression immediately and to release the two Canadians as well, Michael Korbik and Michael Spavor, who were groundlessly detained and charged. Yes, and of course, that's a subject that many Canadians Mm -hmm. are extremely passionate about. I imagine that there will be much support at the rally today for those two Michaels. We hope so, yes. So the rally gets underway at 2 p.m. at the Vancouver Art Gallery. What kind of turnout are you expecting? Um, We're actually expecting a larger turnout just because this time it's not just like one specific community. Like you said, it's a multi-ethnic protest along with that um, because we are... um, endorsing uh, Michael Corvig's and Michael Spav- uh, Spavor's um, release. Um, I feel like we will have a lot of support from both our, the multi-ethnic communities along as Canadians as well. So we're looking for a very large turnout, hopefully. I think it's always so great to see young people in particular politically active, motivated to change this world. You are the youth representative of the Vancouver Uyghur Association. How many young people are involved in this rally that we are expecting to see today? Um, There are quite a few, actually, because from the Hong Kong groups, there are a lot of um, very um, brave young uh, activists that I've met. So there will be a few um, young activists. And for you yourself, you know, when did you start to get politically engaged? Um, I think it was in 2018 when I first, when I first, truly start understanding what was going on because we were no longer able to contact our family back home because before that I had heard of situations that was going on in East, in occupied East Turkestan but I don't think it really hit me until um, it affected me personally. Tell me more about that so you haven't been able to contact your own family back home. Yeah um, my cousins my uncles and my aunts my, my dad's siblings we've had no contact with them for about two to three years and Honestly, at this point, we don't even know if they're in the camps or they're not in the camps or if, um, you know, they're detained in jail or they're working for labor. We have no clue absolutely whatsoever. That must be a, a horrible feeling. 
It, it, it is. It is. And I think um, that feeling is mainly what gets uh, the Uyghur activists that I know around the world uh, motivated and inspired to actually do this activism work. Well, Shalina, best wishes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That is Shalina Nurley, youth representative of the Vancouver Uyghur Association. She will be at the Vancouver Art Gallery at 2 p.m. today, one of many people who are expected to turn out for a rally that is to draw attention to China's human rights record. The rally will also push for the release of the two Michaels who are detained in China. Would you like to see Canada cut ties with Chinese companies who are alleged to be engaged in human rights violations? Now, that's a step that the U.S. states or sorry, rather, the United States Commerce Department has taken. Last Monday, the U.S. Commerce Department added 11 more Chinese companies to a U.S. economic blacklist. The department says that these companies are allegedly involved in using forced labor by Uyghur and other Muslim minority groups. This includes textile companies and two firms the government said were conducting genetic analysis used to further the repression of Muslim minorities. But what exactly does this mean? Well, it means that those blacklisted firms cannot buy components from U.S. companies without U.S. government approval. Would you like to see something similar happen here in Canada as well? To speak more about it, I'm now joined by Salid Hudayar, who's the political refugee and prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Salid, where are you now? I'm uh, actually based in Washington, D.C. And what are the circumstances that led, I, I mean, you're such, a, you're such a young man, I can't even imagine what you've been through over the course of, of your young life. What are the circumstances that have led you now to be in Washington? So um, I had fled uh, East Turkestan um, back in 2000 due to the uh, oppression in East Turkestan. Uh, over the years, I grew up in Oklahoma, and really in 2017, um, I was forced, uh, in a way, I was forced to or compelled to move to Washington, D.C. to engage on uh, political and human rights activism on behalf of uh, our people, given that the Chinese government was uh, engaging in essentially what is a genocide by locking up millions of our people in concentration camps, uh, harvesting their organs, uh, sterilizing uh, the women, and transferring uh, over uh, half a million children away from their families into uh, state-run boarding schools and uh, orphanages. What do you think about the steps that the U.S. Commerce Department has taken? Do you think they've gone far enough? Um, I think these are good uh, first steps, but I still don't think that it's enough. Uh, the United States government needs to uh, do more um, in actually sanctioning other Chinese officials, uh, they need to recognize the uh, atrocities as uh, what it is, which is a genocide. And we have uh, have seen some steps towards this uh, through, you know, um, the U.S. Congress, uh, through the French uh, Parliament, uh, the U.K. as well, and even Canada last week. Uh, they've held, the Canadian Parliament has held um, hearings on the uh, genocide in East Turkestan. And do you think that there will be action that comes from those hearings in particular? Of course, I'm interested in what you think the Canadian government will be doing since that's where we are. 
Yes. Uh, so last week, um, our government in exile, along with uh, 64 Canadian uh, members of parliament, signed on to a letter urging uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to engage in Magnitsky sanctions, to enact Magnitsky sanctions against uh, Chinese officials that are responsible for the uh, crimes against humanity in East Turkestan. We also filed a complaint with the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, back in July uh, 6th, uh, urging them to investigate and prosecute uh, Chinese officials uh, for genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, the Canadian government um, can, you know, engage in sanctions. We also encourage them and other states to uh, support this case at the ICC and to hold uh, China accountable for its uh, crimes. And what is the reaction being from the Chinese Communist Party? So the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, it, uh, as always, it always denies that uh, it's doing anything uh, wrong, that it's engaging in a genocide in East Turkestan. Uh, it claims that it fighting against uh, separatism and terrorism and that there is no human rights violations that are happening. Um, it's, it's the similar response that they've previously have stated uh, historically. Salih, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. That was Salih Hudayar. He's the political refugee and prime minister of the, e- Tur- the East Turkestan government in exile. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.